Nice to see you all. Did everybody sleep well? Anybody have weird dreams? Lots of weird dreams. Something was up. Something was up last night. I think there were weird dreams abounded last night. I think some people. Does anybody in here not dream? Like you just, you wake up in the morning, you have no recollection of anything you ever happened in your brain that night. Yeah, it's amazing. I always run into people like that. I think, how could you possibly not know what was happening in your brain last night? But a lot of people. I don't think you don't dream. I just think you're such a deep sleeper that you, that you don't know it. <laughs> you don't know you're dreaming. All right, let me pray, and then we'll get started into our time this morning. Father, we are just so grateful to be born in um, a place where we're free to gather like this and have a school like this to worship, to complain, to challenge, to question. We are truly blessed, but with this freedom comes a great responsibility. And even more so, as citizens of your kingdom, we are called to a higher uh, level of responsibility. So I pray, God, that as we put our hearts and our minds together, find unity in your spirit, that um, you would enlighten us and help us to come to a place of understanding that can help us be more effective citizens of your kingdom while we're here on planet Earth. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're talking about political culture, um, which is of interest to some, probably more so than like philosophical culture, but not of interest to everybody. I think a lot of people, especially American Christians, feel like they don't have anything to do with, you know, secular politics and what's happening in politics and what difference does it make. Um, but as all the cultures that we've talked about, this is another one of those that really determines the nature of our life and how we can live. Um, has anybody ever not lived in the US? Anybody in this room not lived in the US? Um, where did you live? Russia. Yeah. So it's a completely different, how old were you? Yeah, so there's a completely different political atmosphere in different places in the world. And um, we are incredibly blessed. So let's use some questions here to get into our topic. Um, and again, in your little threesomes, come up with three words that help you <coughs> describe uh, political culture, not necessarily American political culture, but just political culture in general. Three words. Ready to go.
All right, let's get together, see what we came up with. And we'll do the same thing where we'll just have a word from each of the groups. We'll start with the back group on this side. Third wheel. What? High stakes. Like a lot to be lost. Or game. Like ribeyes, high stakes. Yeah. What about this group? Forward thinking. As in, not obsessed with what has happened, but trying to make something happen. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so she clarified it by saying they're the first ones in thinking about what's going to happen or causing maybe even what's going to happen. This group? Money. Money? Is that the group consensus? <laughs> power. Yeah, which in our country usually those two go together. Got power and money. Back row? High stakes power. High stakes power. Yeah. I know, yeah, it's true. Corrupt. Corrupt. Um, like compromised or like intentionally. I think you're right. I think that if there's a place in our society, especially in the West, that it's most obvious that ends justify means. Um, and people don't go in there like, I'm going to be a corrupt politician. Like, nobody like, aspires to that. Um, in fact, if you, look, if you think of like, the recent Tea Party infusing, uh, infusing tea, that's great, Tea Party infusing into <laughs> political structure in the US, the idea was for them to come in and change political structures and political thinking. Um, and have you heard anything from a Tea Party representative in a year? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> because what happened is the verse, reverse infusion happened. The Tea Party didn't go in and change anything. The Tea Party members went in and became part of the system. Yeah. Fluctuating, Fluctuating especially here. Yeah. And in my church, we have fluctuating government in my church, too. <laughs> Political structure. Uh, leadership. OK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, leadership. And it's definitely a place we're looking for leadership. And I think that is something that people aspire to government or politics for, is they want to lead. And it's typically somebody like they're a class president and um, you know, sat on city council or whatever. They've assumed positions of leadership and are looking for more and more influence. Angels? <laughs> Heavily burdened. Yeah, heavy responsibility. Have you noticed that uh, in your lifetime how much Obama has grayed in the time that he's been in office? In my lifetime, it was the bushes. And our bushes got grayer as, uh, as time went on. Yeah, so what about, um, what do you think is the core of political hope? And let's just leave this one open. What's the core of political hope? Why do people aspire into government? They're not trying to make things I want to go there and make things worse. They want to go and make things better. What is the core of that? Yeah. Good intentions. Yeah, Jake. Say it one more time. Health, wealth, and prosperity that they're trying to get those for themselves or 
spread those out. Yeah. Yeah, and um, even in our political structure, bipartisan political structure, both groups would say that's what they want for everybody. They just have mutually exclusive ways of trying to achieve it. Yeah. Other ideas? The core of political hope? Yeah. Yeah, and they, I think problem solving is part of it. And I think there is a hope in if we could solve all the problems, we'd all be okay. Like, let's identify the problems and fix them. And when you fix one, you'll find another one and another one and another one. But if we could fix them all, the hope is we would have the kind of society that we're hoping that we want. Yeah. Anything else? These are good, and this is why. Um, People are drawn into politics. Part of it is power and the use of power and feeling powerful and wielding influence. But predominantly, the people who are there are trying to wield an influence that will make life better, they're, they're in, in, especially in a democracy. So we live in a free democracy, one of the only free democracies in the world, initiated as a free democracy, initiated by the, you know, refusal to have a king. In fact, I think you probably know this, but when George Washington was first asked to be president, he said, what's the difference between our president and their king? And he actually refused. He did not want to be seen. He didn't think there should be one person who led the executive office, that the executive office should be a committee. He didn't think there should be a president. So we had an unwilling first pres. He didn't want it, which that'd be something I'd like to know. Um, how bad does a presidential candidate want it um, versus how bad people want him? I think of Joe Biden right now, and you, you might not have any opinion about this whatsoever, but you know, he's held, off his, held his name out of candidacy this whole time, trying to probably create a groundswell because people already had him on polls before he was making any declaration at all. Because there's something engaging about somebody who really doesn't want it, but people really want them there. So free democracy, that's what we live in. And we live in a nation state. That is a group of states who together make the United States of America. And in our early government, colonial government and early statehood government, there was a huge division between um, governors and political structures who wanted everything to stay in the power of the state and everything to stay in the power of the federal government. What do you think, who do you think has won so far in our 220 year experiment? Yeah, the federal government has won. Initially, the federal government was for two things. It was to unite a military force and to provide a common economy for the United States but everything else would stay at the state level. Education, uh, civil statutes, how we would act, um, markets, what things would cost, would literally be determined by each state. And that the only thing that we were united for was military might, and that we would have a common currency so that when you move from Idaho to Oregon, you could use Idaho money in Oregon, money that you made in Idaho. Um, like potato chips, I guess, is what they would use in Idaho. 
um, that you could use that money in Oregon where we use brick dust. So, um, so they were trying to create one federal economy. But now you can feel what's changed right now because um, most people don't even know the names of the governor of their state or what a governor does. But the governor is supposed to be like the president of our state and actually make state laws strong. And I'm of the opinion, this is just personal opinion as we're talking about, I'm just trying to get us oriented into political mindset here, <clears throat> that more should be managed at the state level and less should be managed by the federal government. That the federal government has no chance of knowing what is best for Oregon except in what is best for the whole country. But that is not necessarily what's best for Oregon. There is no time or place that the governors of the states get together. That's ridiculous, right? That should not happen, it shouldn't be that way. Just like there's the United Nations, we, have, we should have a United States where they all get together and they talk about what's happening in their state. So, very, very interesting. What are healthy ways that the church can cooperate with political structures? Turn and talk and then I'll give you like three minutes and then you let me know. Both? Yeah, you can say both. All right, let's come together and see what we found out. What are some healthy ways that church, the church, can cooperate or, as Austin said, interact with political structures or politics? Yeah? I would say participate in the politics, like 
So we talked about um, the lesser of the two evils. Voting the lesser of two evils. Yeah. So I remember when. Because uh, <laughs> those are our only options. Yeah. <laughs> we can't vote for what's right. All we have are two evils. So you're talking about the voting process. We should vote. Yeah. And you're just saying, yeah. pick the best of whatever's offered. I remember Mitt Romney and Obama were originally going up head to head. And I remember our pastor like giving us, my pastor at the time, giving us a talk on like why we should vote for Romney, even though he was a Mormon. Like, because he helped more of a police structure as most Christians did, whereas Obama at the time doesn't like, you know. So I just thought it's like really interesting that she brought that up because like, who are you to vote for when you don't have someone who Why do you see a pastor in that role? I would say a pastor because he he's someone that you automatically trust with an authority because you're going to a church, you're under his flock. And also you would hope that he would continue his responsibility of being trustworthy and honest. And so I guess it's where you always have to go back and check and make sure that you did what they're saying was right. But a pastor is to lead his church and it's not leading if you are just I guess the I don't know the right word for it. Like, it's not his place to choose who you vote for. I feel like it's more of his place to, if it comes up or if it's something that's heavily prevalent in his church, to let them know what's going on in the world, I guess. Because your pastor's good at leading you in those kinds of things. Like, in Alaska, we used a bill, like, two or three years ago, like, about if we should allow... There's a bill going forward saying that we couldn't reject people because of their sexuality. Because, like, or, like saying, like, we can have, like, a, a gay pastor or something like that. I remember our pastor at that time, he was talking to us about that bill, and that's when he was like, you need to vote against us because this is what it means for us if it happens. So I think there's different areas. There's a gray area in there somewhere. Yeah, interestingly, a couple of things that you said. The first thing is that um, a church is, is literally stepping outside of their class as a 501c3 by endorsing a candidate. <coughs> so that a church has to willfully make up its mind to not be a nonprofit any longer and not enjoy the privileges and the tax, ex tax exemptions of nonprofit status if they want to become endorsers of a candidate. Not a position. You can state a position, but you can't be a 501c3 that's not politically affiliated and endorse a candidate. And if a pastor does, that's how it's qualified. So, which I don't have any problem with that as long as a church willingly gives up its 501c3 tax exempt status, which most churches don't want to, and most pastors in particular don't want to. Um, in fact, I read you know, a lot and, and hear of pastors who get mad at the government for an already stated law. It's already law. So you're breaking the law by doing it. And then when their tax exempt status gets challenged, they hire you know, some religious <laughs> political law group to come and defend them, but it's a stated law. So I wish churches would just understand that and be like, I'm, I, it matters so much to me that I will give up my tax exempt status. That's how much it matters to me. But we want both. We want to have a voice 
and keep our status. Yeah? Wait, so are you saying that churches do not encourage voting? Is that what you're saying? A candidate, not a position. So they can't pay you to use their and not vote for Nope. But they can. They just have to be willing to give up their tax exempt 501c3 nonprofit status. So if the general, like the pastor, stands up there and talks about like. He's breaking the law. Which is okay. I'm not, I'm not saying that's bad. You just have to recognize it and say, like, I speed. Anybody not speed here? I speed. And if I get pulled over for it, I just say, yeah, I was going. <laughs> Are you like a really slow driver? <laughs> I, I admire that so much. I, you know, I think it's like, for me, it's like <laughs> law and grace. So I, I use my... My cruise control, if I'm living under law, and I don't use it if I'm li living under grace. So. Yeah. Um, just going back to the question. Good. Um, I think um, we need to be confident, first and foremost, that God is in control and he has the leaders in power over us who he wants. So I think having that, having our perspective, perspective go off of that knowledge is really You mean not militantly, like fighting against stuff and, and being viewed as antagonistic, but find the things we can be for and be positively for those. I like that. Yeah? Ethics and politics? That's good. Why do politics and ethics go so close together? Yeah. I think one of the skills is, well, what we see currently doesn't matter as much now. Uh, they would actually use it more as a front to, like, cover up the, the bigger issues. So, like, with presidential election, how they felt about abortion and gay marriage were two of the things that would come up as, like, very important, while like other things were like hidden and like not discussed as like it was it was almost always the ethical issues that became uh, forefront compared to any of the other things that actually had to do with what was going on in our country. Did politics make it about ethics, or did the constituents make it about ethics? Why why are politics and ethics joined together, Jacob? Yeah. Boom. Boom. <laughs> she dropped her mic and she didn't even have one. Why, why though? Why does politics come down to core values? Shh, shh. You said it really quietly, Jacob. <laughs> what he said, what he said is really good. Yeah, I mean, politics is about government. Government is about governance, governing society. Governing is guiding. 
Governing is protecting. Governing is nurturing. That's what a government is for. Um, it's not an end in itself. It has the greater good in mind. So some of it's ethical and some of it's not. Some of it is not necessarily ethical. Our governance doesn't come down to, like traffic laws are not right and wrong. They're just for safety. I mean, you're wrong if you run a red light. That's wrong. But it's also just dumb. I mean, it's just not safe. And the idea of like traffic laws is not to guard morality. It's to guard the safety. It's to govern us as we, as we travel so that we're safe. And pray for them. I think it goes with what, what she said. You know, if they're appointed by God, I should just respect them and honor them. And, you know, as much as I can obey God and obey the government, I should do both as much as I can. Yeah. So let's talk about what motivates government in a pseudo-God, in the underlying uh, hope of making society better, the conviction that we are supposed to govern our society through political structures, the pseudo-God or the idea that gets played out to excess is pragmatism. And pragmatism is the philosophical belief that the highest value is on getting the job done. The highest value is making something work. Pragmatic is somebody who is all about just getting the task done. That's what it means to be pragmatic. So this idea of government, government being pragmatic means that it is committed to observable, practical consequences. You think of a typical presidential or gubernatorial office, they have four years to make as much positive change as they can if they're given two terms eight years. But in the perspective of history, that's not very long. So they have this limited amount of time to go whole hog and get as much done as they can. And that leads them to being just very, very pragmatic. Where do I get the biggest bang for my buck in the political promises that I've made or the political commitments that I've made public? And how do I get that done? And so it has to be observable, it has to be practical, and it has to be, there has to be an effect. There has to be something that makes it better. Like one of the big things is when George Dub left office, our economy was on the verge of wreckage. And as Obama came in, his whole first presidency was trying to put things back together. That was a job number one, is to get our economy back online, is the way they say it, which is a digital reference, but to get our um, economy back into a healthy place. And so it became very, very pragmatic. What, what specifically can we do that gets our economy back into a healthy place? which is good for all of us. I mean, that matters to all of us that, that, that that's possible. Uh, the problem is you, start, you stop asking what's the right thing to do and you start saying what would work. Whether it's the right thing or not, what would work? So like in the economy, one of the strong encouragements came right from the president's mouth was go buy stuff on credit. Because we need credit to make our economy healthier. 
what Americans don't need is to go into debt further. That's what I think. But he was inviting and telling people, if you want an economy that's strong, then you have to go spend money whether you have it or not. That will strengthen our economy. Well, the downside, and economists did not agree with him because our national debt is not what the government has borrowed, it's what the people of our country have borrowed. That's our national debt. People always say, how could, how could the national debt be blah, 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 a trillion dollars? Well, it's because basically every adult I know has debt. <laughs> I do. I can't pay for my house outright, so I have debt and I'm paying it back. That accumulated debt is the national debt. That's the debt that we carry together. So to make that bigger, economists disagreed, but it, it looked like for a short term that that would be the beginning of a fix. Because if you spend more money, you're creating jobs, right? You buy stuff you don't need, somebody has to make the stuff you don't need, so it makes a job. And that was the idea behind it, so we can keep the job market up. So it all of a sudden becomes, well, what, what would work? That's pragmatics, as opposed to what would be best for us. Um, what would be best for all of us, again, just staying in the mode of economy, is for everybody to live within their means mm -hmm. and to work an honest day's work. That would be best for us. But people don't necessarily want to do that. Everybody wants to work as little as possible, but have as much as possible for some reason. And which is backward. There's just no way we can do that. There's no way that a society can continue to run that way. So we're a society that runs on debt. That's what works, apparently, as opposed to what's right and what's best. So there's a high value in what gets the job done. There's a high value in what um, a politician can do in the strength of her term. So she's given a, a term, and her success is going to be based on what she gets done, what she makes work during that time, during the, the time of her term. And that's how you get reelected. That's how you get a second term, is you get enough done in the, in the midst of your, your uh, office that people say, well, keep her there because she's really doing a good job getting things done. Um, but nobody's asking whether it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. And when people do ask, they just say it's too expensive or it's, it takes too long to do the right thing. It just, it takes, it's too much to ask to do the right thing. And that's why so many of our um, desirable candidates don't make it into places of influence because it's not pragmatic. Their views, their views are, are, are too inefficient for the political structure. That bottom line says, hard to read. Solutions are regarded for their immediate possibilities. Whatever can make the most impact earliest. So what are some of the theological downfalls? What are some of the, the handshakes that have happened over time where politics and church have tried to work together and what hasn't worked in this? And the first one is not really North American. It's definitely South American called liberation theology. Has anybody talked about liberation theology here? at all yet. So this is something that derived out of South American tyrannical, um, horrible, despotic governors who would buy themselves into office, but they were just horrible tyrants and they would create horrible atmospheres and people would live under massive repression. 
So this is Central America, South America, a basic Latin government right now in the world even still is at heart a corrupt government. Again, I'll refer to Guatemala because I know the most about it for me. Um, and there are three families in all of Guatemala that just trade political office. These three families hold 80% of the wealth of all of Guatemala. And they just trade opportunities to be president. And they literally, they're just in constant campaign, but it just moves between these three. So the people rose up and said, this is, this is not good. We need to be liberated from these despotic governments. So they're, uh, this idea of a theology of God's kingdom right here, right now on earth, a kingdom of equality, a kingdom of prosperity, a kingdom with no oppression started rising up. And it led to the reform of government to accomplish the kingdom goals, the kingdom ends, that what, God, what government is for on earth is for God's kingdom. And so this theology came full circle and uh, it was actually led by Catholic monks who were busy with the people and started rising up uh, in the sense of liberating the oppressed from these strong, strong political structures. Because if you live poor and oppressed your whole life, and your parents were poor and oppressed, and your grandparents were poor and oppressed, <laughs> it's just you just assume that's your place in life. Until somebody comes along and says, God wants more for you than that. So it became a very temporal realization of the kingdom of God. And the goal of liberation theology is social liberation, which basically means equality for everyone, which basically means economic equality for everyone. That's what it comes down to. Because with economic equality comes education, the chance for better jobs, the chance for a better lifestyle. That's what that is meant by equality. So you could say, why is that a theological pitfall? That sounds pretty good. It became the whole theology that God's kingdom was a current reality, not, not a future reality and that God's kingdom was based on the economic and equality issues, that that's what Jesus Christ came and died for, is for us to have equality within our social structures. That's a problem, right? Yes, that's a problem? Okay. <laughs> no, no, that's great. Nope, nope, that's a problem. The next one is a purely American, and that's dominion theology. This is the idea that the church is God's governmental agency on earth. That we're the people of the kingdom, we're the ones who get it, we're the ones who understand and care for morality and fairness and safety and protection of the weak and orphans and the widows, that this is our responsibility. And uh, so dominion theology is based on the idea that the church is ultimately supposed to take over. And again, this is a squishing down of eschatological realities, of future tense realities, of the new heaven and new earth being literally squished back and established on this earth under a new dominion, which is the dominion of the church. That was a lot of words. Does that make sense to you? Because you're all writing. So as long as you're multitasking, I guess you're okay. <laughs> so Christians are supposed to rule the world. It's a theocracy. And the political reform movement that arose out of Calvinist theology in the early 70s, many in the movement are conservative Presbyterians, followers that believe that every area dominated by sin must be reconstructed in terms of the Bible. 
And again, that sounds pretty good, but it puts this immediate kingdom of heaven right here, right now, as the responsibility of the church to bring a theocracy, a God-led government here. So this is like the, is it the 700 Club or Pat Robertson? I can't never remember the number. I know it's a, yeah, I know it's a hundreds kind of club. Um, and Pat Robertson, in my lifetime, made a couple of bids for the presidency under this platform, under this reconstructionist platform, Dominion Theology. Anybody raised in a church like that, super politically centered? Um, most, like half the sermons are about political issues or anything like that. Because every now and then I run into somebody like this. Because they're, they're typically fundamentalist Calvinist churches who um, have moved in this direction. And they feel like that's the job of the church. The first job of the church is to take over our country and to make it right. What it was originally, and they'll say things like, this is what the pilgrims came for. This is our country was founded on Christian principles. We should get back to these Christian principles, that kind of thing. Any questions or comments? Right. In fact, when they, people suggested that Jesus become king, he ducked and ran. I mean, he was like not interested in that. Um, he wasn't interested in a governmental position, which would have made a lot of sense. You know, you think about the Son of God coming to earth to change the earth. Why not take a highfalutin governmental position and start changing in a, even a local place and let the kingdom of God go out from there? But that's not what he was about at all. So what's good in these is there should be equality. Nobody should be oppressed. What's good in these is people should have opportunity and they shouldn't have a government that holds them down or holds them back. But I'm not sure that, I'm, I'm sure that that is not the main goal of the church on earth. So it's so interesting because I get sucked into these conversations with people, other pastors, and you know there are groups in um, evangelicalism, national groups in evangelicalism, that this is their entire agenda, is to get the church involved politically and motivated politically and get the church to take a stand politically for the sake of ethics. Um, not recognizing that probably legislation is not gonna be our best mode for protecting our ethical values, one way or the other. So our key concept or our idea here of how to provide a better basis for decision-making is as opposed to doing what works to do what is best. No matter what the cost, no matter what the sacrifice, um, to do what is best. For example, economically, the best thing that we could do, like I said, is for people to live within their means and just be happy with less. That our government even in its documentation, is based on people being good. Free democracy, free market capitalism is based on people being good. <laughs> Trickle-down economics means something has to trickle down. Somebody has to live with less so that stuff trickles down to the people who are working. And the difficulty is 
we assume we're good and we're not. People are not good, people are greedy, people are deceptive. Politicians use their power to promote their own lifestyle or to make them, their lives more comfortable at the expense of their constituents. So it's a broken system because people are broken. And we hide behind pragmatics because, man, if it works, sometimes that's enough. My lawnmower stopped working last week. I was just, I changed the oil in it and I was mowing, mowed the back lawn, got the front lawn, did one swipe around, went to empty the bag, went to start again, it wouldn't start. A lawnmower that doesn't work is a bad lawnmower. It's not a good lawnmower. A lawnmower that doesn't cut your grass, by definition, is a bad lawnmower. Am I right? So pragmatics works. I like pragmatics. I like something that works. <laughs> it needed a spark plug. I changed the spark plug on it, gave it a couple pulls, started right up, and I was like, good lawnmower, good lawnmower, <laughs> because all of a sudden it works again. So I want things to work. That's just not the end. There is something more important than just getting it done. There are three things that make something good. This is not your notes. You're going to have to write this down if you want to remember it. The first one is pragmatics. Something's good if it works. If it doesn't work, it's not good no matter what. But that's the lowest kind of goodness. There has to be pragmatics. It has to work. But there's something higher to which we should attain. The second thing that makes something good is that it's pleasurable. Like my favorite topic, chocolate. So how many of you think chocolate is good? Is that a practical thing? Is that pragmatic, like this chocolate just works? No, that just means it's pleasurable. And you'd say, oh, this is really good chocolate. So it brings pleasure. This is a really good day. That could mean both things. It works. And you had chocolate that day. Or I think of God creating. On the first day, he did what he was going to do. He sat back and looked at it and he said, this is good. What did he mean? Probably both. This works. And it makes me happy. I like this. He gets all the way up to the sixth day, creates Adam. He sits back and he goes, wait, wait, wait. This is not good. What did he mean? This is not working. Adam can't be alone. That doesn't work. He wasn't saying in a moral sense that's not good. He was just saying it doesn't work. And Adam looks lonely, so it's not pleasurable. So he fixed it, and he made something that worked and was good. And he sat back at the end of that time and said, now, 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 now it's good. It all works, and it's all pleasurable. He made perfection. He made paradise. Eden was perfect. It was perfectly beautiful. It was perfectly desirable. Everything about it was good. The third and most important aspect of goodness is moral goodness. And moral goodness is pleasurable, and moral goodness works. But if you stop at just pragmatics, that doesn't mean you're going to get all the way to moral goodness. If you stop at what's pleasurable, you're definitely not going to get all the way to moral goodness. And one of the things that we have to keep pressing for is moral structure, moral goodness, moral rightness, because it works and because it is best for everybody. What the government is supposed to do is make decisions that are for the highest good for the highest number of people. 
not the privileged, and not the oppressed. It should be even across the board for everybody. That's the goal of government. I think of God's perfect government. There will come a time, a new heaven and a new earth. Sin is conquered. Death and, and Hades are thrown into the fire, the burning sulfur destructive fire. And Jesus takes over and he's king of the world. Finally, he's king. What will that be like? What will life be like when Jesus is king of the world and sin and death are no more? It'll be good. It'll work. It'll be pleasurable. And it will be moral. So the ways that we can get involved right now should promote those three things. And we should help our representatives and our elected officials push past pragmatism and get all the way to what is best. Not just good, but is best. And we have a voice in that. And we should be talking about that. And this is what I think pastors should be doing, is helping people understand what's best and how we are to be the body of Christ and not just talk about it, not just criticize, but be part of making things good. When we go to Guatemala, we're going to an oppressed place where things are not good. They're the happiest people I've ever seen, okay? It's amazing to me how happy people can be with so little. They're amazingly happy. And they're in amazingly good shape. <laughs> it's surprising to find a impoverished Guatemalan who's out of shape because um, they work so hard. But when we go there, we're, we make their life better. We take dentists and we take out their bad teeth. I've even pulled teeth um, because one day the dentist's were, arms were cramping because it's a lot of work to pull one of these big back teeth, you know? And literally they were pulling so many teeth and it was so hot and they were so dehydrated that their muscles were cramping. And so I was just cleaning dental tools, being a good pastor. And they brought me over and said, you need to start pulling these teeth because we can't do it. We don't have enough strength left in our arms. I'm like, that's gross. I can't do it. I mean, because they'd already made me start giving the Novocaine shots, which is horrible. Holding somebody's mouth open and sticking and it's like, I hope I'm doing this right because I didn't go to dental school. Um, and then they said, you know, you have to start pulling these teeth. So I had to, actually had to pull like three teeth one day. And it's, it is horrible. Ugh. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's terrible. Um, but doing that, we're actually making people's lives better. We take doctors with us and we've been treating all kinds of diseases and all kinds of symptoms and all kinds of realities. This year, we're actually taking two blood analysts with us so we can do on-site blood analysis and see if people have any diseases that are identifiable through their blood. That's amazing. We take two technicians and they each carry this $5,000 machine that we can take it into these little places and give them what you go to your doctor for. And we take hundreds of pounds of pharmaceuticals and we make life better. We also build water filters and fuel efficient stoves and we love being with the people and we work with them and we hang out with them and, and eat with them and talk with them and laugh with them and, and share with them. It's amazing what we are able to do. And I get totally behind that. I have not yet in, I think I've gone like 12 years ever, prayed with someone to receive Jesus who was Guatemalan. I have, but there are people who went with us on our team, <laughs> um, not the people that we're there to, to minister to. But I feel like we're advancing the kingdom of God because we're doing what is good. We're making life better, which is part of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a place where things are good. I think of life when Jesus Christ will be king of the earth. There will be no disease, no sorrow, no backstabbing, no deception, 
life will be good. And we should promote that goodness. We should promote that health. We should promote those good things. But we should also make sure we're doing it the best way possible. And force our governors to ask, not what works, but what is right. What is the right thing to do? And give them the courage to do it. Any questions or comments? We'll get in early. Okay, let me pray. Lord God, we do pray for our president and for those in the executive office who inform him, who um, hold him accountable, who support him, who um, share his vision and his hopes. I especially pray for him as he makes his last actions, his last decisions, and his presidency, that you would give him boldness and rightness. I pray for our elected officials in both houses, and I pray, Father, that you would help them to stay in touch with their constituents and their states, that they would listen to the people back home, that they would watch out for the welfare, um, for their individual communities and their individual societies, their individual states. I pray, God, for nonpartisanism when it comes to the biggest decisions. I pray that right would prevail, that your kingdom rightness would prevail, and that money would not be an issue, greed would not be an issue, power would not be an issue. And I pray, God, earnestly for our judicial system. I pray, Lord, for wise choices. I pray for open, honest communication. I pray. God, for no debauchery and no deception. I pray for no money to be handed underneath tables, but for decisions to be made that are not just workable, not just pleasurable, but that are morally right choices. And I, um, I just thank you again that we get to live in a country that we can pray like this and that we have a voice. And I pray that you would help us to use it to promote and advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.